Is the recording here? Okay. As always, I want to thank the Pardes Institute, PARDS.org.il, for making this class happen. Hi, everybody. It's great to see everybody. Those, uh, I don't, can't see everybody in totality, but I think I might even know everybody I can see on the screen, which is always exciting. Um, so this is the beginning of the Omer series. What I want to do is take two or three minutes to paint a big picture about what we're going to do, um, both just practically running the class and also like, what are we going to do over the next seven classes? And we're going to dive right in with a bit of a frame. And today's all about the backstory, because even though, well, I'll, I'll get there in a second. So, so <clears throat> the technical side of things, uh, as always, I've got the chat open here. If, if I lose someone or something is not clear, um, it's reasonable. Ask me for a date or a name. Please don't ask me to spell complicated names quickly, though, because I'm bad in every language, as many of you know. Um, so that stuff is great, etc. I will pause for people's questions. I've received a, a significant amount of feedback and requests that we keep things to questions um, and not uh, an, an opportunity to express opinions. I'm not so fond of cutting people off and I'm sharing some feedback that I've received and I ask that we all be partners that your insights are definitely welcome, but we all need to be conscious of the time and I will also be. Um, so that, and then as much as I can, seeing people's smiling faces and the nonverbal responsiveness is uh, really just it's very special to me. It makes my job possible. Okay. Um, that's that from the technical side. In terms of what I want to do, the class is um, is entitled "From Destruction to Rebirth," uh, which is a, a classic phrase or framing for this period from 1938 to 1948, and nonetheless true for its usage. But um, I want to offer you a slightly different frame for understanding it, and now not in contradiction to, but let's say in uh, in addition, and that's going to be the emergence of survival Zionism, right? And, and we've, I will get, like I said, the backstory today and explain a little bit more what, what I mean about that. But in order to do so, we, I wanna recognize the fact that Zionism shaped what we know about Judaism today, except from a historical perspective, meaning one could maybe make an argument that Israel is moving out to the center, certainly for American Jewry, perhaps world Jewry, but for the last, since the emergence of the state for certain, and even before that, some momentum was pulling that way, Right, the, the Zionists won, so to speak. And so I want to understand how did that happen and what in particular allowed people to survive. And of course, the parallel question that we're going to discuss is the people who survive have certain qualities that allow them to do so. Are those the same qualities that will lead to building a society in which you want to live and which will thrive? Those are no, by no degree certainties. Evolution is a, is a fickle beast. But so in order to do that, I'm going to start with the first two classes in the land of Israel. Like I said, today is going to be the backstory, a little bit of introduction of the this struggle within the shuv, the Jewish settlement there. And then next week, we'll do the other half of that with the end of the Anglo-Zionist alliance. It's total breakdown, if you're familiar with during the Arab revolt, and we'll speak about that. And then I want to go to American Jewry and ask, actually, to be honest with you, either to American Jewry and ask what was American Jewry doing when the war broke out and as it rose, or we might make a pit stop in Europe first. I haven't decided which order, but we need to see America, we need to see Europe. And then I want to close back of course here in the land of Israel with um, with the, the War of Independence. I'm not a military historian, I wanna say from right now, the War of Independence is gonna be a setup for me. I mean, I'm gonna set up and then I'm gonna tell you, and you all know we won, et cetera, it was a very hard war. I'm gonna tell you that now, like uh, just to keep clear expectations. Um, I may touch on a couple of things, perhaps the question of the struggle for Jerusalem is always uh, so worthwhile, but um, that's the big picture. And that's what I hope to do. We have seven classes, but Hashem, I think it's reasonable. Um, so, okay. We good to go? That was, it was clear. And um, uh, my email is on 
I mean, I'll put it here now, just in case people don't have it. Do one last sort of like professional thing, and then we'll actually get started on on the sweep of history. What's it like? And, and you can always be in touch with me. I did get some helpful feedback from people. Um, and, and so that is is definitely, I may not always change, but I will read it, that's for sure. Tove, so, so we're gonna tell the backstory. Um, like I said, the framing that I wanna add to the sort of uh, destruction and rebirth model of understanding what happened during this, oop, can I ask somebody might mute himself there? This tremendously traumatic decade for the world as a whole, remember, and Am Israel is like in this sense, like on top of the top of it. Um, so the frame I wanna add is that this was a great evolutionary moment in the Jewish story. If you think of Europe as we left it in the flow of our class, or how, as you may know it, right? If you weren't part of that, um, every type of Jew, every way of seeing Judaism, every way of seeing the Jews, every way of seeing what Am Yisrael should be doing, could be doing, every way of thinking we're just like everybody else and we wanna be the secular communist, etc. You can picture it. And Zionism is by no means the strong opinion amongst them. As we know that the socialist Bundes world in, in the pale were being numerically superior. And, and we'll see some of the shifts of that with the rise of Beitar and revision Zionism today. But bottom line, Zionism is not a given that it is the contender. And numerically speaking, of course, the number of Jews in the land of Israel during this point in the development of the Yishuv, the Jewish settlement there, is insignificant. You know, so we're in the tens of thousands, maybe top 100,000, we have a census in 1922, we'll check in a second. But um, nonetheless, World War II will come, the show will come basically like this. Imagine all those Jews sitting around a table, you know, the communist, atheists, religious Zionists, the, you know, visionary nationalists, et cetera, et cetera. And then everybody either get on the boat or you're done. 1938, 1939 depending on where you are, 40, meaning it did fade, as we'll see. It wasn't like the gates were shut immediately, but it happened pretty swiftly when it came. And if you were outside of Europe, you had a chance of surviving. And if you were inside, you had a far, far less. And that's, I hate to say it, it a great evolutionary movement. We could call it the great selection. If you want to be Darwinian about it and a little bit grim in terms of the resonance to that word and the actual process of elimination, but it is the great selection. And, and what we have to understand, like I said, is what are the qualities and historical circumstances that promote what survived? Zionism as the leadership model. And then what type of society will those people build? What are they striving to build? How much does their vision of that society and what they're striving for allow them to survive? And like I said, a deeper question for us today is are those qualities what will build a society in which we wanna live, which will thrive, which is sustainable? There's a word I would offer to you, survival. Being survivability and sustainability are not always, sometimes they're in conflict, you know, in the immediacy of situations in particular. And that's the emergency medical model. If you've ever worked in medicine at all, it's like, I don't care how much plastic you're wasting, how many extras you used, what you broke in the process, he's going to live or it's not, right? And, and, and so that survival mode is not the same as sustainable. Though, you know, please God, sustainability is a good survival tactic in the long run. So, so in that sense, what I want to line out between this week and next week um, are two conflicts. One within, particularly within the Yishuv, the Jewish settlement in Israel, but it reflects a split within the world Jewry at large and it plays itself down to today. And the other one between Arab and Jew, which obviously is still unfortunately alive and well with us today. 
So in order to do that, I want us to actually start way back in 1920 with the fall of Tel Chai, right? Um, I'm going to put here, because I see it hasn't come up, um, the, that's a link to a, just a Word document, like I said, from my notes, because I thought it'd be helpful. But there's not so many dates. Tel Chai, if you're not familiar with the story, in a very small nutshell, was a Jewish agricultural settlement, which was in the Northern Galilee, which in 1920, if you recall, the British and the French were carving up the whole Ottoman Empire before the war even on their maps. And as Arab nationalism became an ally to British imperialism, right? And, and the same time that Montgomery's troops walk into Jerusalem, his troops also go into Damascus and end up uh, establishing Faisal, one of the sons of the Sheriff of Mecca, that's down there in Arabian Peninsula, as king in Damascus, if people are familiar, if not, just the, the British and French are going to do their colonial dance in a very sharp sorted way um, in the Northern Galilee. And you have Jewish agricultural settlements up there that are these sort of small pragmatic Zionism, find a piece of land, live on it and don't move, right? And so in 1920, after a, a significant amount of border skirmishes, the, the Jewish settlement of Tel Chai is overwhelmed by, you can call them Bedouin, you can call them Arabs, what you call them, by the way, is itself an indication of a lot of politics. Um, but, uh, oh gosh, I, I missed my dramatic opening. <laughs> I just looked at my notes and thought, ah, well, we'll come back to it. I guess we'll dive in, we'll end there, we'll end there. Um, you always should look at your notes, right? So, so Telchai's fall is what we're actually interested in. The, the, too much of the backstory will get you overwhelmed. And you may be familiar, who was the famous personality whose name is bound up with the fall of Telchai? It's Yosef Trumpledore. Right, as we, who we lost saw as Zev Jabotinsky's companion in creating the Jewish Legion, and therefore in, in that narrative was the ultimate soldier and the one-armed hero who dropped his gun and picked up a plow and headed for you know, the borderlands to redeem labor itself, not just the land on which he was going to build. And then his famous words are, right, it's good to die for your country. Right, This is the sort of nechama that, that uh, according to tradition, he gave to his... Um, his companions and therefore to the country. But, but, but the reality is Aaron Scher, who was actually one of the casualties of the first battle of Tel Chai, because like I said, it was eventually overwhelmed. There was more than one battle. Um, Aaron Scher actually said, one does, does not desert a place nor give up that which has been built. Not nearly as famous, but far more expressive about what was actually happening at Tel Chai. I'll say it again. One does not desert a place nor give up that which has been built. That, if you want to define where Zionism is at this point, that is where it's at. And by the way, that is, of course, the ultimate survival stance, right? You don't give up or give or anything you've built. That's it. We're not budging. And of course, the unstated part is that they're, they're the forward-moving edge. Right? This is not purely a defensive posture. Let's just be clear on that. As we get to the Arab-Israel conflict and its origins, mostly next week, then uh, we, we will see. But, but as a as a expression of national will and what the society that's emerging is organizing around, Tel Chai comes to embody also a very important tension. I would even say rift within the narratives and within the community of the Yeshuv and ultimately of the Jews. What is that rift? Was Chompeldor a soldier who was defending an agricultural settlement or was he a farmer who was forced to pick up a gun to defend his land? You know, in the old discussion between the plow and the rifle or the, or the spear, you know, if you're in the book of Nehemiah, which is a little bit more in our tradition, right? In that old tradition, what is Ikar and what is Tafel? What is the primary and what is the secondary? 
right? And and even if, by the way, everyone agrees that uh, um, in an ideal sense, the land is the goal. Nonetheless, what is the prior, proper means at this point in very tense, you know, world history and in particular Jewish history? Meaning, should we be focused on the plow? And, and the productivity, and that should be the ideal which inspires us, or should we be focused on the gun and the realities which that dictates? So if you know more than a little bit about what comes forward, you'll recognize that the, the religion of labor, the conquest of labor, the socialist labor world that we detailed in our previous semester is obviously going to pick up the image of the plow and the pioneer Right, it becomes the sort of cultural organizing myth of the leadership of, of the early state for sure. And it continues even in many imagery to this day, right? And on the other hand, the gun becomes a, an absolute reality. I mean, this is in many ways the beginning of a hundred year war that we're in year 101 of. Right now one could say, if you wanted to, we could debate about when the hundred year war between Arabs and Jews began, but Tel Chai is arguably it. Um, and so from this sense of the emergence of survival Zionism, it's always important to put some peg there, right? But in terms of the struggle within the Yishuv, and when I say as for, for control of a national myth, I mean, literally within a few years of the fall of Tel Chai, the 11th of Adar, the day in which it falls, becomes a place for youth pilgrimages and, and the uh, sort of the nascent educational ministry, which exists within the Jewish agency, whose birth we'll discuss shortly, will begin to publish essays and poetry. Um, we'll see then, that's the labor establishment side. Zev Jabotinsky, who was the companion of Trumpledor in the army, of course, takes his, his myth and makes it a, a very simple argument for the fact that um, the world will never give you anything. You'll either take something or hold on to what you can defend. Right, and, and it's not that Jabotinsky is opposed to the idea that the land, he wants the wholeness of the land as we'll see further on in his ideology, but, but his focus is on the fact that the world will never give you anything. You will either get what you take and of course, and or what you can hold on to, right? Um, but I wanna give it the words of, uh, since we're doing this as the backstory of um, Yosef Chaim Brenner. It was like a pillar of the Hebrew Renaissance. We can't tell his story, but whose words, he had a, he had a, a tough life. We saw Brenner in the Afal Pichin. I mentioned him if you recall. If not, then I don't wanna overwhelm people, but. He gave a eulogy for Tel Chai that really says it all. He says, a cold calculation would have left no room for doubt that Tel Chai should have been evacuated. But the heart, the selfless heart, believed in miracles. It believed the normal laws would be suspended, that devotion was everything, that love for a piece of earth could move mountains. Besides, if we left every place in which there was danger, there would be no place we would not have to leave, no position we would not have to retreat from, but to where, right? And those two pieces, the heart, the heart, the intoxication with the piece of land and the very real, did you hear almost grim sense? And, and by the way, even if you're not feeling particularly intoxicated and you want to retreat, where exactly are you headed in your backwards motion? Um, you know, those two pieces will really define a lot of this drive to survive. But the first splits, just like I said, nascent really exists in who's trying to grab the myth of Tel Chai and what's its lesson. But it doesn't really start to become a sort of a lived reality beyond post facto, you know, academic analysis until the cycle of um, what, you know, classic Zionist history calls 
the cycle of Arab riots and British commissions begins, right? Um, if you know, if you have that timeline there, if you want, I can actually. If people don't have it, just just like I, I'll just list them. There, there are major, so to speak, riots in 1920, where known as the Nebi Musa riots. In 1921, the Jaffa riots. There are others in there, but the perhaps most famous next one is uh, 1929, the Hebron riots, or what many people know as the Hebron massacre. Um, and then, as we'll speak about next week, there's a full-scale, what's called the Arab Revolt, which itself is an interesting framing that we'll push on a little bit next week, um, which is really a war between the British and the Arabs that the Jews are mixed in on in every possible way. Um, but in those, those cycles of increasing violence, the question of how do we survive and what type of society should we build is going to become increasingly a source of internal division. So again, I'm gonna to try to keep it separate, but we need to understand the way in which Tel Chai gets seized upon. And there's a quick um, sort of uh, parting of the ways between Jabotinsky and what eventually becomes known as revisionist Zionism and mainstream, we'll call it labor Zionism because it's an easy uh, sort of marker that people know, although it's a bit of a already a historical anachronism to call it that already, but nonetheless, it's that world. So, so I wanna tell you the story of one, the first riot, the Nebi Musa riots, in order so we can understand the cycle of what happened. Um, we'll speak a little bit more about the later consequences next week. And we're gonna keep an eye in particular on the, um, let's say moral and historical conclusions that Jabotinsky draws from this and how they differ from the sort of uh, what will become Ben-Gurion and Chaim Weitzman, et cetera, that world. You guys with me where we're going with this? Um, so, so the Nebi Musa riots happen only uh, a month or so after Tel Chai, which is why I like to look at them together. And Nebi Musa was, a, I mean, if you guys have driven east from Jerusalem, best underneath my house, the highway goes down to the Dead Sea, you pass the turnoff for Nebi Musa. It's a shrine, which according to many traditional Muslim sources is where Moses was buried, obviously differs with our whole story about him, both A, not knowing where he's buried and B, it being Avery Yardim, but we don't need to get into that now. Um, and it was a certain place of pilgrimage uh, for a long time. The Turks had a hand in building it up because it's always pilgrimage is good for the economy. So here we are in 1920 with tens of thousands of Muslims gathered in the walls of the old city of Jerusalem, ready for the festival. And while they're waiting, they are addressed by two voices from two different places. One is the mayor's office, and it is the mayor himself who's with the municipal building, who's addressing him. His name is Musa al-Husseini, right? And, and the other was Musa's nephew, Amin al-Husseini, right? Now he chose a different platform, which was the Jerusalem Arab Club, which is interesting that it existed already because it means that you had a nationalist club within Jerusalem in 1920, Arab Nationalist Club. Wasn't certain at this point, just without going too far into the backstory, whether that nationalism was Syrian nationalism, Arab nationalism, Palestinian nationalism. But at this point, one could say it's about to become Palestinian nationalism within a matter of minutes. Um, so, so you have the mayor and you have Al-Husseini who is a child of the um, Sharif of Jerusalem, Mufti, sorry. We call him the Mufti, not the Sharif, the Sharif of Mecca, Mufti of Jerusalem, um, and will become Haj Amin al-Husseini soon enough when he makes his first Hajj, which is how many people probably know him. And I'm not going to overwhelm us with details on what comes next, but what is important that we understand is that these two figures, one political and one religious, are looking to whip up the crowd. And in that point, their sort of rhetoric to do so is a mix of power politics, cries of freedom, you know, uh, independence, independence, remembering again that the Tel Chai battle was part of the fight for an independent Arab state 
centered on Damascus. Remember, this is Arab nationalism, but also the classic, um, you know, Palestine is our land, the Jews are our dogs, Kaiba, Kaiba, Yahud, right? And, and classic Arabic sort of religious Jews, remember the Kaiba, the army of Muhammad is returning. And that mingling is going to define the sort of environment in which survivalist Zionism is going to emerge within the land going forward. The mingling of sort of local nationalism, which will go from being Arab to Palestinian nationalism, like I said, it's an academic question at what point in this story, but it's emerging here. You want to push it a little bit further back, you can find documentation beyond that, we can talk. But mixed with a deeply indigenous opposition to Jews in power at all, Jew as Jews, not as some sort of secular nationalist entity. Um, so this doesn't end well, as you can imagine. It's the first riot. Um, and a, when I look at the numbers that I wrote down for myself and the results of it, um, it, it was four, five Jews dead, four Arab died, 23 Arabs and 216 Jews injured. Now, it's important to note that, that the Arabs who were killed were killed by British attempting to control the situation, right? Because they are at this point, the mandate and law, and the British are certainly about law and order, you know. Um, furthermore, the Anglo-Zionist alliance at this point is still fresh off the press and for most people a happy thing, although we'll see not, well, let's say happy under very limited terms because as this sort of multi-day riot is getting underway, a very clear split emerges amongst the Zionist executive leadership, many of whom are in the land. Chaim Weizmann and the official leadership, Weizmann wasn't there, if I'm not mistaken, physically there, but the official leadership basically looked to the British, said this is this Anglo-Zionist Anglo alliance, they are law and order, they should solve this problem. Jabotinsky saw the, the solution to be, no, 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 we need to be ready, willing, and able to fight. Remember, there was a decommissioned Jewish legion kind of like scattered around the very small Jewish community of this country at this point, even if it was only in the matter of hundreds, if not low thousands, that was men who had been trained to fight. And indeed, he gathers some of them together, as well as obviously other sort of interested parties. And he had already begun training before this riot broke out. Being who he was, he presented himself um, as violence broke out to the British military governor, I think it was stores at this point, um, and offered his assistance, showed that he was armed and said, we'll help keep the peace. So what does the British military governor do? Promptly takes his weapon and takes him into custody and searches offices, residences of any known associates he may have, um, because of course the British aren't interested in a, a private militia at this point. Um, it, it, what ends up happening is that uh, I think 19 people get arrested yeah, 250 rounds of ammunition, three rifles. I mean, he's got a, a small stash. And Jabotinsky actually, he, at first, is not there. Like, they, they let him go. They took his pistol, let him go, and then they, they basically follow it, and et cetera. And, but he turns himself in. He says, well, these men were under my command. You know, if you're going to take them, take me. And they are more than happy to oblige. Um, and it's at this point for him that he begins. He's not quite yet persona non grata within the British mandate, but soon enough, he will not be able to enter uh, any longer as in the eyes of the British. And it really flows from here in his sense that the only way that Jews will be able to survive is by taking activist stance toward any violence which is shown toward us. And by activist, it doesn't mean by encouraging another people to maintain law and order. That's the key split. The mainstream Zionist executive, which will soon be the Jewish agency, says we have the Anglo-Zionist alliance, the Balfour Declaration, the British, we are effectively a small cultural group within the Commonwealth. You're not, I'm, we're not looking to keep order in the British Empire. And Jabotinsky's point was, we're not looking to be part of the British Empire. We're looking to be a Jewish state. And, and, and 
the the breaking point you know pragmatic zionism was grow grow one more dune and one more goat jabotinsky was one more person who knows how to, to shoot a gun or or and is willing to do it as we'll see that willing to do it piece even he in the end perhaps may have balked but um the cycle wouldn't be complete if there weren't a commission afterwards and indeed there was an investigation British had a commission. I'm not going to overwhelm you with names of commissions, etc. Um, we'll get to the key ones as the land starts to get divided up, um, probably next week. Um, but, but for now, it's a cycle. The Jewish provocation, in its essence, is moving in. The Arab response is political, um, religious, etc., and it periodically breaks out into violence. The who started it thing is always an open question, et cetera. But, but most of these things I think are reliably documented that the Jews were not starting violence. Unless of course one says just by moving in, that was an act of conquest, which you know, uh, as we'll see shortly is an important point. And then the British both in an attempt to maintain order, but also an attempt to enhance their own power and control. Because the British are very quickly, if you're unaware of the cycle, going to see that they have a, a strong interest in not letting anyone but themselves control this region. It dominates the Suez Canal. It connects to the oil fields in, in Baghdad. It is perfectly positioned for projecting power in the entire Eastern Mediterranean. It's from an imperial standpoint, a rather critical piece of land. And Jews as like prosperous local citizens are great, you know, so are Arabs, right? Um, and, and if there's gonna be a conflict between the two, if it's, if it's controllable, even better. Because every time violence breaks out, more law and more force steps in. And the structures of power move ever more firmly into British hands and into British interests, as we're gonna see as we look at the conflict outwards next week. But again, for now, this cycle repeats itself, like I said, in 1921, and it will go further. But um, I wanna extract an important piece of thought out of it because in 1923, a few things happened. First of all, in 1923, Jabotinsky forms Beitar. Right? The Beitar youth movement will become the largest youth movement in Poland, Jewish youth movement. There may have been non-Jewish youth movements bigger, I don't know. I'm just being like, careful. Although there are 100,000 Jews in Beitar, Poland when Menachem Begin was, uh, was head in 1938, I think it was, I mean, my numbers, if I'm, okay, so that's, even if you're fudging it a little bit on your registration rolls, that's still pretty impressive, right? So he, he, he and, and that's, um, you know, 20 years later, sorry, uh, 15 years later. Um, it, so 1923, he founds Beitar. Beitar, of course, is a, references two things. It's a, Roshi Tebo, the acronym for Brit Yosef Trumpeldor, you know, this covenant, which is the covenant that, that um, it's good to have a land to die for. If you're gonna say it's good to die for your land, you gotta have a land to die for. And what's increasingly becoming Javitism's perspective is not just that we have to be ready to fight, et cetera, but we wanna revise the momentum of the Anglo-Zionist alliance. Because these, um, the cycle of riots and commissions that I mentioned, as I said, that we're strengthening British power, we're also dividing off the land, right? This is the point at which the, the, the area of Transjordan was defined as a separate entity from the Palestine mandate and then subsequently written out of the mandate. It's a complicated question there. It's behind us, I can't go into it. But either way, that's when Transjordan gets put off the map, which is why the revisionists, I'm sure many people are familiar, classically will take the picture of both sides of the Jordan as their aspirational notion. And the word revise in its simplistic sense, it has a lot of explanations, right? Will we'll be basically revising that policy. He doesn't actually, found the revisionist movement within the world Zionist movement until 1925. But Beitar comes first, it's a youth movement. 
Brit Yosef Trumpeldor represents that sort of power myth image of what a Jew is in our day is ready to defend and even take. It, it, the other piece, of course, is, um, is that Beitar is the name of the last stronghold of the Bar Kokhba revolt. Back second century, to you know, put things in full perspective, the third of the three Roman Jewish wars and the one which was the ultimate destruction of the Jewish settlement at the end of the second temple period. I mean, it was the temple had been gone, but that was the end of the period for all intents and purposes. And whom the rabbis labeled as, you know, a sinner, if not deeply problematic, and that the, this was a disastrous, etc. And for most of subsequent Jewish history, Baruch was not a happy hero. We've spoken about his revival, Max Nordau and, and muscular Judaism, etc. So don't miss the fact that when, when Jabotinsky chose Beitar, it wasn't just Brit Yosef Trumpeldor and this local national myth hero whom he knew, but it was also honor, or let's say death before dishonor. Just say it like it is. <laughs> like death before dishonor. A noble fall is something which we as a people must need to learn to do again. Because there are certain things that it's better to die for. And that's not an exile mentality. If you think of the degradation and the dishonor, so to speak, to which our people were subject, you know, in Europe, because he's a European Jew, but I mean, throughout the world, in the preceding 15, 1600 years, you know, 18, whatever, I forget what year we're in, 1900, you do the math, you get my point, right? That's a big switch. It's a big switch. And it's an interesting question because on the surface of it, that type of self-sacrificing um, attitude is, is not such a survival move. Jews learn to bend because the stiff-necked tree is broken by the storm, right? The willow that can go back and forth survives. And yet... Jabotinsky's contention was there are moments in history or there are moments in cultural evolution or however you want to conceive of it when no, actually dishonor is worse than death and it's not survivable. That you won't be the person because just as we say, the qualities that, that allow a person to survive, are they the ones that we want to build as a society, right? Are the qualities that allow one to bend and bow and, and sort of like scrape and do whatever you need to do, are those the qualities on which you want to build a society as well? It's tough, it's a tough call. So um, he, in founding Beitar, and then in 1925, founding within, again, the within the world Zionist movement, just like there are, you know, be labor Zionists and general Zionists and religious Zionists, it's a political entity, which essentially is what our Knesset grows out of, right? The Jews have parties and vote for slates and they're organized around ideas or in personalities. So he founds that within it in, in 1925, and he's already starting to see that his thinking and his vision for the Jewish people are not just drifting from mainstream, but are much more militant because the other side of the voice is build, 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 grow, grow, grow within the empire structure. And frankly, if the British want to take care of our dirty work, more power to them. And on that note, I'm going to talk about his essay, The Iron Wall, but I want to make sure I haven't lost anyone. The things need, people need to be clarified because I'm throwing a lot of information because this is the backstory. Yeah, Barbara, I see it. Yeah. Um, when you threw in that whole Transjordan, I, I don't know where it so came and you were talking quickly. Okay, don't, I okay the, so I'm going to go back over that when we go next week to look at the Arab revolt and how the British really continued their dividing up this region and giving it to multiple peoples. Remember that theme we spoke about last semester, how the British promised to the Arabs, probably the Jews, they promised to the French. Right, right. Okay. So that, essentially that process won't end and they're going to cut off pieces of this mandate and do different things with them. And next week, I'll give you what more details. What is Trans Jordan? I mean, oh, it's just... it basically the, the eastern side of the Jordan River. It's the state of modern it's... state of Jordan. Modern state of Jordan. Oh, okay. 
Um, okay. All right. So you're going to do great. more next week. Uh, no, but thank you. That's the, exactly the type of question that I want you to ask. I don't want to lose you on point of, uh, of information because I don't want to assume. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, other things, people. Yeah, Avram. A small point. You had mentioned General Montgomery. I think you meant Allenby. Oh, yes. Thank you. Yeah. Montgomery, so next war. Okay. Yeah, I knew that, that's, your, that's your time period. Thank you for catching me on that. Other things, or we're gonna, we're gonna. Okay, I see my hand raising. Um, um, okay, so 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 there's an essay that that Jabotinsky writes that really will, I think, bring into focus the essential question that's dividing the the Jews of the Yishuv and increasing the Jews of Europe. Like I told you, Beitar is going to have a hundred thousand members, which means that all the folks that don't join but still agree with them, it's a real voice. This essay is called um, The Iron Wall. It's called The Iron Wall. He publishes it in 1923. Um, and it is the first extensive treatment that I'm aware of, of the reality of the Arabs and their implication for the Zionist project. Now, you would think by 1923, somebody would have thought about it. But I'm not going to go into the backstory, but it's it, it, the intoxication and with the land, the conquest of labor and the pragmatic one them here, one goat here, peace actually in many ways allowed them not to ignore the Arabs, but to romanticize them into part of the landscape or fit them easily into sort of like sort of fantasies of uh, class evolution and feudalism, etc. But Jabotinsky was always looking at the hard picture. That was his style. So what does he write in the Iron Wall? First of all, he, he says, I'm reputed to be an enemy of the Arabs because he was seen as the one who was willing to use violence, who wants to have them ejected from Palestine. They were already framing him, they being the mainstream Zionist movement, Ben-Gurion, as we'll soon see, becomes his personal enemy, which is never a good thing at this point in Jewish history. And, and Ben-Gurion had a number of people that he labeled as such. Um, so I'm reputed to be an enemy who wants to have them ejected from Palestine and so forth. It is not true. I am prepared to take an oath binding ourselves and our descendants that we shall never do anything contrary to the principle of equal rights and that we shall never try to eject anyone. This seems to be a fairly peaceful credo. That's the beginning of the Iron Wall. It's a willingness to take an oath for equal rights and a refusal to eject anyone from their home. Now, that may sound to you as basic common sense and decency. That may sound to you as astounding. It may sound to you in many ways. What's important is to understand that this is the side of Jabotinsky, which he builds in some ways into his movement of the sort of classic liberal. He, he's a classic liberal. He believes in human freedom, economic freedom, personal freedom, national freedom. Um, and he had been involved in what were known as the Helsinki negotiations, etc. I mean, he had worked in this question. And, and this statement is a, a genuine reflection of where, how he sees the world, as is the next statement. But it's quite another question, whether it's always possible to realize a peaceful aim by peaceful means. Meaning, that's my aim. Now, how will we get there? And he goes on to describe a situation that... Um, <laughs> our peacemongers, as he calls them, right? He, he's, his rhetoric was always, you know, stunning according to the, to the reports, both in writing. I, I happen to love reading his stuff in translation, even, but, um, but apparently as a speaker, he was astounding as well. But our peacemongers are trying to persuade us that the Arabs are either fools who can deceive by masking our real aims or corrupt and can be bribed to abandon to us their claim to priority in Palestine. I repudiate this concept of Palestinian Arabs. We may tell them whatever we like about the innocence of our aims, but they know what we want as well as we know they did not want, right? Which is essentially the Zionists want one thing, Jewish immigration, he goes on to describe, and that's what the Arabs don't want. 
And if you pretend anything else, that we can buy them off with improved economic conditions, that we can just keep blowing smoke in their faces, that no, 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 we're not looking to take over, then you're either a fool or a bigot, right? And, and, and so he goes on to say that, that Zionism is either moral and just or it's not. And he says, if we hold that Zionism is moral and just, justice must be done. So as he says, no matter whether Joseph or Simon or Ivan or Ahmed agree with it or not, I mean, this pledge of equality and, and, and uh, liberty, etc., is premised in his eyes on the idea that the Zionist project of creating a Jewish majority in the land of Israel, which is how he insisted on defining it, and was ultimately that insistence on defining the, the goal of the Zionist project as creating a Jewish majority in the land of Israel is what causes him to lose power or any hope of power in the 17th Zionist Congress. And in the long run will cause him to actually break with the world Zionist organization and attempt to create his own parallel Zionist world. Um, but it's that vision. So he says, that's what we're all after. And there's only one way to achieve that behind an iron wall because the Arabs will not accept it. And we believe it's just. And the only difference between what he calls our vegetarians, right? Um, he says, this is our Arab policy, whether we admit it or not. In this matter, there's no difference between our militarists and our vegetarians, except that the first, the militarists, prefer that the iron wall should consist of Jewish soldiers and the others are content that they should be British, right? And, and, and this is what you have to see through his eyes to really understand the analysis I'm trying to get at in the essential conflict amongst Jews which will get that baked through this moment of crisis and evolution that we're going to see in this coming decade, which is that either everybody agrees that the goal here is getting all the Jews, and if not all the Jews, getting lots of Jews into the land of Israel. And everybody recognizes that's going to involve some force. Says Jabotinsky, if you can't do it for yourself, it's not going to get done. Says Ben-Gurion, Chaim Weizmann, and the sort of mainstream voices which are coming to control the first Zionist executive and then soon to be Jewish agency? No, no, that's what this Anglo-Zionist alliance is about. They will do it, right? And um, this distinction is going to lead to a conflict between them, meaning one might think, okay, so each will try their own, et cetera, but the British aren't going to put up with Jabotinsky and his armed Jews, as I already pointed out to you. And they will therefore very quickly, you know, when you have a group of people who insist on enforcing the law themselves, and another group of people who see themselves as the duly constituted authorities, you're heading for conflict really quickly. And you see how it's splitting the Jews for right now, right? And, and it's a matter of vision. And what we're going to see is that the framing of this question is going to be a way in which, you know, each side is going to be able to vilify each other down to this day. Right? As, as Jabotinsky points out, as long as the Arabs feel there is the least hope of getting rid of us, They'll refuse to give up this hope in return for either kind words or bread and butter because they're not a rabble, but a living people. You hear that? He says, the iron wall works and it's actually a peaceful solution because as soon as we project the absolute inflexible statement, we are here and there's more of us coming. You may have full rights and whatever gets built here, but we are here and there's more of us coming. And if, and if they won't give it to us, we're going to take it. And whatever we take, we're going to defend it. Now, do Ben-Gurion and Chaim Weizmann and the other Zionists disagree with him? Not really, but they would prefer that the British are the ones who establish the fact that we're here and there's more of us coming 
and whatever we get, we're going to not give it up because Tel Chai is a message for everyone. You do that by the plow or by the, the sword is its own machok, its own disagreement. But the essential message of Tel Chai, as I told you, the words of Aaron Sher is you don't give up what you've already built. Everybody agrees with that. And so Jabotinsky in many ways is calling out a emerging partnership between the power structure of mainstream Zionism and the power structure of the British mandate, which is going to end in some very messy and complicated relationships as we will see. So, but um, the real like split between he and, uh, and the mainstream is going to come over a couple of things. Um, so it, wait, wait, he, Mike? Yes. Just Robert. one question. Yes. But when the labor saw that the British weren't defending them, what was their attitude? Oh, no, because... no, the British were defending them. No, no but no, they no, were no, defending no. the Arabs. Like I pointed out to you, no, like I pointed out to you in those first riots and the Jaffa riots that came, et cetera. Also, by the way, in the Hebron riots, the vast majority of Arab casualties, I mean, more or less all of them, with, with a few exceptions, were, were British caused. And we're, as we're going to see next week in from the 1936 to 1939, what's known as the Arab Revolt, and we're going to do that next week, the British will systematically crush Arab military abilities. And by the way, that will have a deep influence on the situation on the ground when the war of independence comes. But we'll, we'll get there. But perhaps what you're echoing, Barbara, is that but the British are going to play the Jews and the Arabs off against each other. And the Jews, right. they prefer the Jews as victims. They don't want them armed themselves. Like I said, this is going to get messy, but this is the backstory. We're not there yet. Okay. Um, and, that, and so that's why this machloket between the mainstream labor, labor like the British, it's an Anglo-Zionist alliance. They're going to protect us. Jabotinsky is saying, that's not going to, it's not going to work. Um, there's another piece that gets driven between the revisionist Jabotinsky world and the, say, Ben-Gurion labor world. And it's important to understand. It's another piece of the backstory in terms of the, the third and fourth aliyah. I'm going to tell the third aliyah I'm not going to go into right now, except to say, the, if you recall, the second aliyah was the ideological, pioneering, first kibbutz, numerically not so you know, sort of large, but ideologically very strong. Um, and it ended with the Anglo-Zionist alliance. I mean, it really ended technically World War One when it was impossible to immigrate anymore, but with the fruit of it was the Anglo-Zionist alliance. The third aliyah follows the war and basically goes for three or four years. It's, it's, it, and it's institution building. This is when things like the Histadrut, like the National um, Labor Union um, and, and, uh, and political parties, et cetera. They, and this is when labor Zionism is able to go from being um, sort of uh, ideologically motivated small groups of people clinging and purchasing land to starting to purchase large tracks in the Jezreel Valley, the Jewish National Fund is starting to get. Um, and therefore, you know, you're gonna start building collective abilities to you know, bring together farm products and distribute. And, and, and the vision, by the way, at this point of institution building for the socialist labor Zionists is driven, of course, by the Soviet Union just over the horizon, which in the early 20s, in many people's eyes, was a world power, growing faster and okay. leaps, leaps and bounds. I mean, a lot of people had no idea what was going on, but, but you know, Ben Gurion and other um, labor Zionists will go to the Soviet Union to see, you know, like, you know, farm equipment and demonstrations of the advances yeah. of the communist state. And they'll be very moved by this idea of what they call the shortcut, that they could just leap to this socialist utopia without the classic Marxist um, evolution from feudal agricultural to capitalist, to, um, you know, to the rule of the proletariat. And, they, and it's almost an intoxicating time. Again, numerically, not so large. There's a census, the mandatory government takes its first census in 1922. We're talking about 84,000 Jews in the land and they're 11% of the population. But 1923, by the next year, there were 8,000 immigrants every year, which is a significant increase. Now, 
So what happens is that sort of that institution building and the Ben-Gurion vision and political, social, and national are all one thing, remember, in this vision. He has a vision of the Histadrut as a national union, which will literally collect the wages of every laborer and, and, and give them their daily bread in his more like absolutist fantastic moments. We'll see that he switches out of that soon enough. But that's the ideal, and it feels like it's reality until 1924. 1924, two things happen. Um, there is, if, uh, if you're looking at that document that sent you, of course, I always forget the name of the act, the um, Johnson-Reed Act. When Congress in America passes severe restriction on immigration. And when we've spoken in the past about this wave of Jewish immigration between 1880 and 1920, that's what people talk about. We talk about like, you know, two, three million Jews make it from Eastern Europe to America. It's, well, what's the 1920? It's really technically 1924 is the true end with this um, Johnson-Reed Act that, that shuts down immigration from the, uh, sorry, into the United States, which at first increases and then, but the, then technically, and, and, you know, in many ways, there's a, like a machloket, is that part of the, is that the end of the third aliyah or the beginning of the fourth? For our purposes, we don't need to get that detailed. What we do need to know, though, is that um, we're going to call, we'll call it the beginning of the fourth, just so it, is that together with it is um, a nationalist policy in the Polish state, which suddenly makes it very difficult for the Jewish middle class. The Jewish middle class has had it good in Poland for a long time. Right? Remember, a lot, most of the Jews flooding into America were coming from the Pale, from Russia. Right? Mm. The Jews of Poland were, were, were doing okay. But suddenly, you're going to get a bad life for the Jews in Poland. There's no escape to America. Where are the ones that are mobile going to go? Suddenly, they come to the land of Israel. And it's known as the fourth Aliyah. It was also nicknamed the Grabski Aliyah because that was the name of the Polish finance minister at the time. And what's critical is that this is a very different wave of immigrants. Now, 67,000 Jews will come between 1924 and 1929. That's a huge, remember I told you in, in 1922, there were 80, what did I say, 84, something like that. Mm -hmm. It's, it's about two thirds. It's like two thirds of, of, in addition to what were, and half of them will be from Poland, right? And the majority of those won't be pioneers. They're certainly not ideologues. They're middle-class merchants and, and they want an urban life and they want to reproduce the life of commerce and trade and industry that gave them the life that they knew. This is the point at which Tel Aviv actually really becomes a city and ceases to become like a Jewish dream of a beach town. Um, you know, uh, the, uh, it's the entrepreneurial Aliyah, which stands in deep opposition to the labor movement Aliyah. In fact, like all those institutions and that excitement that he stood and that Zionist labor vision, utopian happening now collapses in the face of this because suddenly you have a middle class, right? And they have very different interests. Uh, and, and they're not interested in collective farming. They're certainly not letting you take their wages. They want freedom to do business. And freedom to do business in a socialist country is not freedom, but it's not a socialist country. It's a British mandate where the Jews who wield a lot of the power as the middlemen have a particular worldview and are attempting to organize. You understand how complicated it gets? And these people are new citizens who, who want resource, et cetera. Many of them are, if not now, then will soon be members of Beitar and, and will have a more revisionist perspective on, um, on you know, Jabotinsky and who gets to rule. But really, it's at the end of 1925 that yet another crisis will strike and it's going to be another defining moment in this internal Jewish conflict. So far, we have the gun in the plow. And we have what Jabotinsky called the vegetarians and the militarists, meaning 
Are, is our iron wall going to be held up by us or is it going to be held up by the British? Because we all agree we want more Jews, right? And now what's really going to happen is, is um, the classic left-wing, right-wing distinction between freedom of commerce, capitalist society, and the social society. And it will take place around um, first an economic crisis, like I said, in 1925. It, it was basically the worst the Shuv had seen. It was triggered by all kinds of stuff that we don't need to get into. Uh, but like people can't pay their mortgages in Tel Aviv. The, the labor market shrinks rapidly. Businesses start to collapse. Uh, it's at this point, by the way, in the bigger picture, this, will, this crisis will also lead momentarily into the forms of the Jewish agency because there's just a new level of, of both um, financial support from abroad, which is needed, and a new level of just institutional organization. Um, you know, and the former sort of... Uh, euphoria of a full employment and socialist utopia is now a lot of people out of work and oh wait we have a question there yeah asked did i lose you yeah can ezra you're, you're muted but if you have a question if i if i missed you if you could ask the question because i want to keep moving oh you're trying to unmute yourself and you can't do it I'm sorry. If you if you figure out the mute, just interrupt me. Okay. So so um. You know, for the sake of time. What's ultimately going to happen is that Jabotinsky is going to take very public, uh, in this case, written stances on breaking the strikes, right? because these laborers are coming in. They don't necessarily want to play the game of the Histadrut, and register within the Histadrut labor union they have like a basically a labor market that they control employers come to the institute Institute gives out labor but of course there's another way to work that which is that the employers are there and the labor just comes and knocks on their door so so a lot of these young poles who aren't socialist idealistic and are hungry and out of work and are sensing that they're already being excluded from the halls of power because they have a more revisionist mindset on, on a militancy uh, about many things are suddenly finding themselves excluded from the labor market, but having access to being what we call strike breakers, right? And, and uh, there's actually violence already by 1930, 1931, I think actually is the one that the, the, there will be a direct attack, a, a Beitar rally in support of, you know, labor and their worldview will be attacked by history activists so badly that there'll be a whole fight within the labor leadership over it. But I'm only telling it to you now in the big picture so you appreciate that these are the types of tensions that are getting being built into the foundation of this society. It's the, the gun versus the plow, the, the do it ourselves versus let the British take care of it. And now it's gonna be the personal freedom and liberty economically or sort of a, a socialist state where there's a network of power that we, we fit into it. And you see how the revisionists are being cast in each of these cases as outsiders. And so that process of casting them as outsiders really um, culminates, like I said, I've referenced a few times, in first the formation of the Jewish agency, which uh, in 1929, Chaim Weizmann, who's the head of the general Zionist uh, party, takes this, there had been a Zionist executive, which was basically a, uh, like a, a committee formed out of the world Zionist movement that was running Zionist activities within the land of Israel. By 1929, they realized they needed a more robust administration that could interact with the British and pursue clear policy. And, and, and like I said, in face of this economic crisis, raise money from abroad and administer it on the ground to keep the community together. 
this is a big revolution for the Jewish story because the Jewish agency is the first um, active arm of the Zionist movement, which includes non-Zionist organizations. Remember, at this point, the, the, the Zionists in their own world are supreme and that's all that's important, et cetera. But if you look at them globally, numerically, they're not in, in the lead. And so Weitzman will bring in non-Zionist organizations basically to help raise money, but um, also because to try to continue to build this sense of common destiny. Um, that Jewish agency and the sort of Zionist executive that parallels it now within the world Zionist movement um, will come to a head of conflict basically in 1930. I think I, wait, hang on. Did I write it in my notes here? Sorry, I lost. I don't want to quote the wrong year to you guys. Here it is. Uh, it's 1931. I didn't. I didn't put it here. Which is that the 17th Zionist Congress in 1931 is the basically the political showdown that sets the stage now for how this these two diverging sides of the Jewish story within the land of Israel are going to start to embody themselves in separate political entities, which we still have today. Right? Those the political bodies are still there. So what happens there? That the, like I said, Chaim Weizmann and the general Zionists have been dominating the Zionist organization since the Anglo-Zionist alliance. I mean, who could, what could be more impressive than that, right? Jabotinsky has been bucking from within that for this revisionist stance. We don't need the British. They're, they're no longer our allies, but they sort of are, but they're not really, but they sort of are, but they're not really, but we need to revise. Notice he's not stepping away yet, um, but he's been pushing against that assumption that our goal is to be a commonwealth and specifically pushing that the goal is a Jewish majority in the land of Israel, right? And then we have the labor Zionists as we'll call them as a whole who have been set out to gain power on the ground building of the Easter Jude and all these organizations I spoke about and have now realized Ben Gurion and his companion Beryl Katnelson who story we're not gonna tell right now have realized that the way to power is, is to have as many institutions on the ground as possible and a lock on the political mechanism. And so in 1931, at the 17th Zionist Congress, the general Zionists have dominated for a long time, but they're in decline and they don't have a majority, right? When the votes are tallied, they actually have a plurality, right? Meaning they're the largest party, but the workers party, Ben-Gurion's world has 29%, while Jabotinsky's revisionist party has 21%, which means that the general Zionists can make a coalition with either one, this should sound familiar, that there's like a center which can't rule on its own, but it, it can make a deal with the left or it can make a deal with the right, but it must do one of them. And what entails is something which would look exhaustingly familiar for those of us who've been here for the last, you know, uh, sort of, what, four rounds, I don't know, whatever, of um, ideological negotiations. Because, because of course, at this point, there's always power and there's always money um, and there's always personality but, but, you know, Ben-Gurion on one side and Jabotinsky on the other are also ideologues. And so each of them has its insistence of a platform um, which the general Zionists must sign on to in order to become their partner. And each of them holds out, et cetera. Uh, in the end, it turns out that Jabotinsky is either the more uncompromising of the idealists or just slower off the gun. Because at a certain point, he decides to let go, according to the way it's reported, to let go of his insistence that it be an, a definition of Zionism that the goal is a Jewish majority in the land of Israel. Some people say he was rejected because of it. Some people say he was willing to let it go, but either way he was too late because Ben-Gurion and Burl Katzelson had already struck a deal. 
the workers' parties agreed to support the general Zionists. And it was from this point on in 1931 that it took a three more years, basically, until the workers' parties were now the majority, not majority, they had the plurality and then were able to form the coalition themselves as a center party and then ultimately would take the majority. But it was from here on out that Ben-Gurion and the socialist Zionist labor world controlled not just the institutions on the ground, but the political institutions that now administer them, right? 1931, and of course, then Jabotinsky has his decline out. Um, by 1935, it's only four years later, Jabotinsky will break completely with the World Zionist Organization and form his own uh, new Zionist organization. One starts to feel bad at a certain point about like, like I'm going to take my ball and go play on my own field. It's just such a sad part of the, the Jewish story. But th this is indeed what happens in, in 1935. And at this point, <clears throat> like I can't tell the whole backstory, but the blood between the labor left, as we call them today, and the revisionist right is so bad that um, it wasn't just the street violence around strike breaking. There's a whole story, which is very deep and complicated, which is outside of our scope of um, the murder of Chaim or Lazarov, which threatens to actually send the Yishuv into civil war um, because uh, the left accuses revisionist Zionists of actually being pulling the trigger and not just being involved. And, and it's a complicated, as we say, to this day, if you bring up the case of the, of the murder of Chaim Lazarov here in, in uh, modern Israel, knowledgeable people will start to take sides and debate and details and eh, it's a Parsha, as we say. But I bring it here only not to overwhelm you, but just to point out to how bad the blood really is. Now, 1935 is a good place to push pause because, of course, what else happens in 1935 is I deliberately put in those um, in those the timeline I gave you is that the Nuremberg laws are passed in September of 1935. I mean, the Nazis have been in power, if I'm not mistaken, they actually rose to power in 33, maybe it was. I, I'll check that detail when we when we get back into the, the, the rise of war. January 30th, 1933. Yeah, it was great, thank you. Um, but 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 I reason that I chose the Nuremberg Laws wasn't just because that was the moment at which Jabotinsky decides to take his ball and go play on his own field. And the split within the Jews living in the land of Israel, which is reflective of the split of Jews of Europe as well, remember, it's not just a uh, like a, a small fish, in a, a big fish in a small pond problem. Um, that split becomes formalized just as the Nazis are powerful enough to make a legal declaration that the Holocaust is coming, right? I mean, that's basically how I view the Nuremberg Laws. That is the legal declaration that the Holocaust is coming. They may not have known what it was gonna look like at that point. Nobody else could have known, et cetera. But, but once you pass laws like the Nuremberg Laws, um, it's not going anywhere good. And therefore one would hope that the Jews would have the ability to, to um, drop their differences, circle wagons, and um, and try to pull it together. And, and unfortunately, we'll see that that's not such a simple process right through. But they're in a survival posture. I do, I'm gonna pause for questions in one second, but I just wanna remember that, that what's driving this is a deep disagreement on many fronts. First of all, and actually I won't even many fronts, a base about how to best wield power. How to best wield power. That's the tell high split over the myth is that is not just the, the gun, the plow. Remember, they're both tools of power because everyone's goal here is to survive and to return to the land. We may have different visions of the political structure that we'll have. We may have hazy messianic visions of the process or we may have very pragmatic visions of it. But the goal is to return to the land, either all of us or the Jewish people in capitals, whatever that means numerically, but that's an assumption that whoever's not here is not really the Jewish people. Don't forget that about the Zionist vision, right? 
but there's an increasing sense that basically somebody's just dialing up the heat on the planet. And, and as that pressure rises with the heat rising and, and the need to survive becomes more and more pressing, the decisions made about water proper tactics, what's the vision or the vision versus the revision. Remember revisionism is simply on its simplest level, Jeb Tinsley saying we need to revise this whole Anglo-Zionist alliance vision and, and move toward a state ultimately would be the language he chooses. Whereas the, his opponents, Ben Gurion and the, the ultimately Chaim Weizmann as well, but um, are more interested in growth within British context. What's the end goal? Yeah, yeah, we talk about, it, we don't talk about it. Ben Gurion's a complicated leader and we will give him his day. But, but that's the backstory. I have a place I want to end with shortly, but um, I'm going to pause for questions, clarifications, things to people before we wrap it up. Yeah, Barbara. Yeah. All right, I got lost when you were talking about labor and his tadrut. Um, first of all, if you can be more, I mean, I don't know this stuff. I wish I did. Okay. okay. But, um, what, where I lost you in who are they or why are they important? No, in other words, I thought they were equal. Labor and his tadrut okay, were so, more socialism. And yes. then you said they were fighting with each other. And I'm like, I don't care. Uh, okay, maybe, maybe I misspoke. No, the, the tadrut is the National Labor Union that was formed by the, the you know, Polizia and the workers' parties, right. ultimately evolved into what we think of as, as like in politics as the labor party right. ultimately involved in that. And right. in a vision of Zionism represents labor Zionism. The Histadrut is a particular institution which Ben-Gurion had a grand vision of, of um, turning into a parent state, literally in right. the classic Like a socialism. So oh, how, you, what you would talk but when so, you were talking about there was an economic crisis. Yeah, and, and so therefore the laborers, man on the street, lost, some of them lost faith in those institutions. Some of them didn't have faith in it to begin with and just oh, saw so them as So it wasn't the movement, them it was the laborers, not labor. There you okay. go. Excellent. Uh, Great. All right. All right. Excellent. Um, other clarifications, things, people, before we close it out here. Okay, so, so, um, so then... Uh, this is actually, remember when I said at the beginning, oh, I forgot about my, my, dramatic, move, my, my dramatic moment. So, so I guess I can come back to it. Um, now I have to, of course, find the page because I was so shocked when I looked at it. Give me one second. Yeah, here it is. Um, so, you know, when I, you know, as I said from the beginning that this, this frame of um, destruction and rebirth is, an, is a classic frame. Um, it's an important frame but I think it, it, it's a little bit naive in the idea that rebirth implies that what was there before is born again, right? Whereas the model I want you to think of, and this was the backstory, we're gonna move forward from today. The model I want you thinking of is evolution. What comes next is not, a, whatever got destroyed before will not be born again. Something will be born out of its destruction, right? But it will be something in many ways, wholly new. Of course, nothing is wholly new and evolution is that gradual process. I'm sure I've told you guys my favorite evolutionary image that you have to remember that, that um, you know, the, of course the birds came from the dinosaurs, right? But there was never a parakeet that woke up in the morning and said, oh, what happened yesterday? I was a pterodactyl. Like, you know, it, it doesn't work like that. There, there is a way in which what is, is an expression of what was. And, um, but there are evolutionary moments and that great selection image 
with all the discomfort that it intentionally carries, I want you to remember, these are evolutionary moments and, and therefore what comes through is both sorted and what survives can get baked in, right? And I'm gonna keep sounding the warning note because I think it's important. Don't forget that one of the truths of history that Arnold Toynbee in particular pushes is that yesterday's solutions become tomorrow's problems. Right? The, the means that we use to survive and solve historical situations, if they become an end unto themselves, can often become the next major challenge that we face as a society. There's a lot of wisdom in that observation and we will pursue it at a future time. But for now, I wanna give one last warning because it's 1938. Now we're gonna actually pick up in 1938. Um, Tisha B'Av, in fact, in Warsaw. And Zev Jabotinsky is addressing the crowd. And he says to them, it's three years I'm calling on you, Polish Jewry, the crown of world Jewry. I continue to warn you incessantly that a catastrophe is coming closer. I become gray and old in these years. My heart believes that you, dear brothers and sisters, don't see the volcano, which will soon begin to spit its all-consuming lava. Now, when he says his heart bleeds, Jabotinsky will be dead by 1940, if you're unaware. Essentially of a broken heart. Many ways similar to his ideological mentor, Herzl, who extinguished his life in the pursuit of the Zionist vision. And, and so, but this is 1938 and he's still there calling, says, now, now I've been calling to you. You don't see this because you're immersed and sunk in your daily worries. Today, however, I demand from you trust. It's Shabbat after all. You were convinced already that my prognosis had proven to be right. If you think differently, then drive me out of your midst. However, if you believe me, then listen to me in this 12th hour in the name of God, let any one of you save himself as long as there's still time and time there is very little. And then he says an amazing thing. What else I would say, I'd like to say to you on this day of Tisha B'Av is whoever of you will escape from the catastrophe, he or she will live to see the exalted moment of a great Jewish wedding, the rebirth and rise of a Jewish state. I don't know if I'll be privileged to see it. My son will. I believe in this as I'm sure that tomorrow morning the sun will rise. And then he says to them, eliminate the galut, the, the exile, or the galut will eliminate you. Now, those are strong words and they fit his style. There's a couple of pieces in here which we need to appreciate. First of all, is context. It's 1938, Jabotinsky is no longer in the land. He's not welcome in the land. The British have long since banned his entry into the land. Furthermore, the, the Jewish agency, which becomes the political organizing body of the Jewish community of Yeshu, which will ultimately evolve into what's known as the provisional government, which itself will then evolve into the first Knesset, they're more than happy to keep Jabotinsky out because they see him not only as their political opponent, but at this is the point at which, if not now, then soon, Ben-Gurion will take to calling um, Vladimir Zev Jabotinsky, you know, Vladimir Hitler. You know, it, it, yeah. Now, granted, he didn't know what was happening in the death camps yet when he said it, but still, right? That's how bad the blood is. The one piece is the context. He is speaking from outside. On the other hand, there is this sense that 1938 
is when the gates were still open. Now, as we'll speak about, open to get out of Europe is not the same as open to get into the land of Israel. And that's the other side of the story that we'll begin to tell next week. But nonetheless, they could have gotten out. And people don't because they're immersed in their daily worries, which is a truism which bears repetition every day. And last but certainly not least, there's a faith. You know, Jephthah is not a religious man, not even one of these other Zionist stories that he was religious and he gave it up, like was true of many of the labor Zionists. Ben Gurion was raised in a very religious. Jephthah, as we spoke about in its time, was a cosmopolitan. He grew up extremely Russified um, with very little Jewish connection. But that hope that he's expressing is an element of the sort of um, messianic vision that arises out of an absolute lack of other choice. Meaning, did he really not have any other choice? Every individual makes that decision for themselves. But from the historical perspective and from the story of what is going to go forward, it will, it will really be his disciples, people like Menachem Begin, who actually, we could give uh, one last you know, sort of closing word to Begin as long as we have five minutes left, um, who will ultimately feel that there is no other choice. And when you have no other choice, remember I told you the real question which we hinge on is how do you wield power? The, the, the pragmatic and labor Zionists who became the mainstream political organization who controlled the institutions within the British mandate will feel they have time. They feel they have time because they're building gradually. They feel more or less secure. They have very pragmatic goals. It's not the Jabotinsky, both sides of the Jordan vision. It's a little bit here, a little bit there. They feel they have time. Jabotinsky, and, and one could argue, by the way, as we will later, they, they were either personally detached from what was happening in Europe, even though their families were all there, or ideologically detached in the sense that, that um, they were actually on Israel now, and all those other were the were the dust of history, you know, um, which is an attitude that we will discover as we go forward in uncomfortable ways. Um, but they felt they had time; they didn't feel this pressure. And, and what I want you to hear in this speech from Jabotinsky is a clock that is ticking down to, as they say, Dakatishim. It's about to strike, and that knock on the door of who gets out and who stays in will be this evolutionary watershed moment. And yet, and yet, and yet, there's something about Jabotinsky, just to finish his story, because I have five minutes, that he won't pull the trigger. See, what's brewing now within the land of Israel, and we're going to tell its story next week, so this is a good lead-in, is war. Because at a certain point, Jabotinsky's iron wall becomes an iron pot on a stove. What happens if you put on a pot on a stove and put a lid on it and crank the heat up? It boils. And if you put a lid on harder, it boils over. And if you weld the lid on, Kaboom. Eventually, the efforts that the British are using to maintain order on the ground and keep the Jews, one could argue, at a low level of conflict, but let's just say maintain order. We'll talk more about the complexity next week. Those efforts are going to create an explosive situation. But Jabotinsky is seen within Beitar first as this great leader, and we didn't speak about it because it's only so much you can do in the backstory, but he is glorified as a leader to the point where it becomes easy for his opponents to accuse him of dabbling in fascism because there's really a charismatic sort of cult of personality that emerges around him, right? But be that as it may, he can't pull the trigger. Beitar has 100,000 foot soldiers, essentially, in, in Poland by 1938. 
and they're already engaged in a little bit of weapons training and quiet agricultural training and illegal immigration training, but their leader is not willing to take that last leap. And so at the Warsaw 38 Beitar conference, which happened that same year of Tisha B'Av, right? Jabotinsky gets basically called to the mat by his own disciple, Menachem Begin, who appears on the stage after Jabotinsky speaks and says, we don't wish to become subjects of ridicule and shame. Let Jewish youth collect iron. Let it create the military potentialities. Then we shall ensure for the Jewish nation a better tomorrow. Meaning he makes a call to arms. And we'll tell Menachem Begin's story on its own. It's coming. But in that sense, I'll end, having been called out in his unwillingness to pull the trigger, I'll end with these words from Jabotinsky in his response, because he gets the last words of the conference. He is Rosh Betar, as they say. He took the stage, and he could see that things were going to a war, and he says, God chose us for basically pain and suffering, for the hangman's rope and for prisons. These will accompany your lives in the struggle for freedom of our land and nation. But the day will come when the nation will choose you to lead and the crown will be truly yours. And if today the youth in Eretz Israel have taken up arms, then remember, this is the work of Beitar. Therefore, carry with dignity and pride your name, Beitari. And what we're going to do next week is we're going to see how these words were indeed a call to arms. And that fighting is about to open up on two fronts. Well, really three. Jewish to British, British to Arab. Actually four. Jewish to Arab and Jew to Jew. And that's going to be a complicated story that will start to unfold and is a big part of this emergence of survival Zionism. So that was the backstory. We actually made it to 1938 in a very rushed, but hopefully coherent fashion. And we'll pick up next week with the Arab Revolt, which, you know, it's like 36 to 39. So 838 is right in the middle of it. All right, folks. Everybody have a great week. And uh, we'll see you then. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mike. Thanks to all of you. Tomorrow, um, Kalev Ben-Dur um, is back with us from 9.30 to 10.30, followed by Alex Israel. Um, and the Zoom links will be sent out to those of you who have just recently registered. So don't worry, you will get the link before the classes. Look forward to seeing you tomorrow. Bye. Bye.